Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew 5, verse 7, and also Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. We continue today to go through the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular the Beatitudes, going through them one by one. Today, the fifth Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in Wales in 1899. His father was a grocer. He had two brothers. One of them, Harold, died in the 1918 flu epidemic. He became a medical doctor. He served for many years as a doctor, married his wife, Bethan, of whom it was said Bethan had 27 marriage proposals, Lloyd-Jones was both the first and the 27th. They had two daughters together, and after years working as a doctor, he felt called to the pastoral ministry. Fast forward a number of years, he became a pastor. He began at one church, went to another in London. At the church in London, he served with another man during the days of World War II. He ended up serving for 30 years at Westminster Chapel in London. He's well known as a beloved pastor, as a faithful preacher, and he's left much by way of legacy, including 
his outstanding work on the Sermon on the Mount. In that work, he digs into the Beatitudes. And as we've seen, he picks up the work of Thomas Watson and others, reminding us that first and foremost, the Beatitudes describe to us Jesus. These are a picture of Christ in all of his perfect righteousness. And now as those of us who are trusting in Christ by faith, they show what God's Spirit is doing in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls to bring us to love God and love each other. This, in some ways, is a picture of the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. These are blessings to you, loved ones. This is not God coming on you to curse you, but to bless you in Christ, because by faith, you have every spiritual blessing for yourself in Christ. They've been given to you in Jesus by the Spirit. And now as we come to Beatitude number five, we look at mercy. Mercy itself, which is entirely of God, done and achieved for us by Christ, poured out upon us by the Spirit, and that mercy that we receive from God through the work of Jesus manifests itself as we show mercy to our neighbor. Let's look today at compassion in action. First, we see God's mercy to us. Definitions matter, don't they? What is mercy? Well, loved ones, we will all receive one of two things from God, every one of us. Either mercy or justice. What we deserve is justice and condemnation as sin is our condition and sin manifests itself in our actions. We deserve hell. Mercy is not getting that hell that we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, Christ and all of his benefits. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering. Mercy is not just words. It's easy to talk, isn't it? Especially for pastors. Mercy is action. Mercy is practical. It's compassion for people in need to help them in their distress, to help them in the needs that they have. This fifth beatitude is connected to all the others. So as we are poor in spirit, as we recognize our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy before God, as we are humbled before God, as we realize our own failures and sins, we will, by the Spirit of God, become more tender, patient, and compassionate towards others. The Beatitudes, remember, loved ones, are not personality types. <laughs> this is the work of God's Spirit. It is completely supernatural. When we are meek, we won't go up to someone who's struggling and say, what's wrong with him? Come on, fix yourself. Get with the program. When we're meek, we won't say, how did they get into that situation? We will say, oh God, but for your grace go I. Help me to acknowledge my need for Christ and to show that compassion that I've received from God to someone else. That's the definition here. That's where this is going. So meekness, uh, I'm sorry, mercy, like meekness, 
starts with understanding who God is. When you read the scriptures, loved ones, from Genesis to Revelation, they are telling us the triune God is abundant in mercy, not stingy, not tight-fisted, not hoarding, but generous to pour out mercy to sinners like us. Exodus 33, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul picks up that very verse in Romans 9. In Exodus 34, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. The Psalms over and over again reflect this, don't they? There's all sorts of Psalms that we are really to meditate on and to memorize and to pray and to sing. Psalm 23 is one of them. I'm sure you and your children, your loved ones, have seen the blessing of this psalm. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me, will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today, the gospel assurance of forgiveness for those who are in Christ, Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Isn't that quite the question? The answer is there's no one. No one comparable to God in greatness, in sovereignty, in majesty, in goodness, in mercy. And then Micah says, this God pardons sins forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, O God, but you delight to show mercy. Ephesians 2, God is rich in mercy and love. Loved ones, this is God's heart for you in Christ. Delighting to show mercy to what? To sinners and The pile and pile builds and builds as Micah talks about our sin. He talks about iniquity, our guilt before a holy God. Transgression, our rebellion against the authority of God. Sin, the wickedness of our hearts. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the question is, how can a holy God pardon sin? Not by overlooking it not by dismissing it. The consequences of sin are death and eternal judgment. And Exodus tells us God will by no means clear the guilty. Our sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. But we read, even in the days of the Old Testament, That God in mercy provides a substitutionary, atoning blood sacrifice for his people. Do you remember children? They had goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat would be offered as a sin offering in the place of sinners. The high priest put his hands on the goat, confessing the sins of the people. The goat is slaughtered in the place of the people. God treading down the sin of his people. And then a second goat, a scapegoat, 
The sin is confessed over that goat. The goat is released to the wilderness, a sign that the sins of God's people are removed, cast out of their presence. God's wrath and judgment we deserve is poured out on another. And for thousands of years, these sacrifices would be offered until the day that we see the perfect Son of God come into the world to deal with our sin, to be made sin for us as a sacrifice of atonement. We see that justice and mercy meet in the Son of God. We see God in the flesh, a pure and spotless lamb, perfect in obedience, offered up on a cross, not for his sins, but for ours. Crucified, dead and buried, we confess that today. But he did not remain dead. He burst through the bonds of death. He rose from the dead, showing us that this sacrifice of atonement was good and pleasing to the Father, that he is God in the flesh, that he achieved a perfect righteousness, that he took our sins on himself so that, as Micah says, he treads our iniquities underfoot. Like stamping on an ant, kids. Do you ever see an ant in the kitchen, and you go and you squish it with your foot. God squishes our sin, and he never moves his foot away from it. For all eternity, our sins are trampled under his foot, Micah says, through Jesus dying in our place. The mercy of God's love and grace in Christ is such that our sins are not only trampled underfoot. Micah gives us another image. Don't you love the picture? They're thrown into the depths of the sea. What is it that God does? What's he like? Who is a God like this? How certain is his grace? That's what Micah's grasping to talk to us about here. It's like the ocean. The ocean in Micah's day was unexplored. Even today, they say, we've explored maybe 10% of the ocean. There are depths and things we haven't even begun to see. And that, loved ones, is where your sins are thrown. Even as Christians, Sinclair Ferguson says, we sometimes don't live and enjoy God and his mercy. We live sometimes as though our sins were greater than God. Our hearts are plagued with fear. Our vision is short-sighted. Our spirits droop. The Christian life becomes a burden. The world becomes a menace to us. And what that is to do is to make our sins greater than God's grace. But Micah says, oh, God is greater than your heart. And his grace is far greater than your sin. Satan wants to gather those sins. Our own hearts want to numb ourselves to cope with our sin. But in Christ, God pardons our sin. So when you are mentally going back and thinking about those sins that God has forgiven, we remember that they've all been nailed to the cross in Jesus 
God says, don't go fishing for them again into the ocean. They've been cast into the depths. God's steadfast love is something he delights in, Micah says. He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in showing mercy. This is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. As Hebrews tells us, I will be merciful, God says, towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Loved ones, God is merciful to us. How then shall we respond? How then shall we live? Secondly, showing mercy to each other. As Christians, we often live below our privileges. Sinclair Ferguson talks of God's mercy to us, that we who have been shown this immeasurable grace are now to live and walk in such a way, in newness of life, that our lives have been changed. God doesn't want you to remain the same, or me. He intends by his spirit and through the gospel of his son to change us to make us more like Jesus. We have been saved, justified by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. We are being saved, being made more like Jesus. And as Romans says, we will be saved. We will be glorified. All those things are true of our Christian experience. Jesus taught us then that mercy should not be kind of miserly, protected and kept close in, but shared. Think of a cul-de-sac. God's mercy to you doesn't come and then kind of die out in a cul-de-sac. It's a street and it keeps on going. It doesn't come to fester in a bog in July with all that gross stuff, kids, on the top of it where it's dead and stinky. It flows like an ever-flowing stream, like a mountain river. Citizens of the kingdom show mercy. And there's a lot of ways, but there's two that Lloyd-Jones and others focus on that we're going to talk about. Showing forgiveness and compassion. Forgiveness. What does that mean? Do you remember Joseph and his brothers? Do you remember kids, what his brothers were doing? They, They basically were going to kill him. But then they sold him to slave traders. And in the sovereign providence of God, many years later, Here are those brothers before Joseph who's second in command in Egypt. What do you think Joseph would do? Would he get his pound of flesh? Would he say, I don't forget? Would he look at them and pound away at them? Joseph had his guilty brothers at his mercy, and he showed them mercy. He wept for them, genuine compassion. He took action as he helped them in their need, supplying food for them. And he said, you intended harm, but God meant it for good. That's a picture of mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Another picture is in Matthew 18. Peter says, okay, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times or... More, 
Jesus says seven, 70 times 7, Matthew 18. Not that you forgive 490 times and then that's it. What's he saying here? Well, don't you love how Jesus uses parables to help us? Earthly stories with heavenly meaning that the Spirit reveals and opens our hearts to see and believe. So he tells him a parable. A guy is in debt. He owes his master 10,000 talents. He pleads for mercy. The master forgives the debt. The guy then goes to another guy who owes him 100 denarii. He says to him, you're going to pay it all. I demand it. When the man couldn't pay the hundred denarii, he orders him thrown in prison. When his boss hears about it, he reimposes the 10,000 talents. In our day, we think, what does that mean? Dale Van Dyke, OPC pastor, I love his work. He says, the number 10,000 was the highest number in the Greek language. So it's an inconceivable innumerable amount, like a gazillion dollars. What does that even mean, Van Dyke says? We don't know. A hundred denarii? Maybe ten, twelve thousand dollars in today's economy. If God has forgiven us an infinite debt, how dare we not forgive the one who owes us twelve thousand dollars? Like the parable in Matthew 18, the beatitude comes with an implied warning, doesn't it? Those who do not show mercy show that they have themselves not really received mercy. James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The Bible offers wonderful gospel assurance to God's people, but no assurance to the one who refuses to show mercy. As Van Dyke says, one of the surest ways to prevent mercy and grace and love in your life from the Lord is to refuse to show mercy to someone else. There's a connection here. David talks about that. When I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord didn't hear my prayer. David was loved by God. David was saved by God. But David was not experiencing communion with God because he's cherishing iniquity in his heart. And so it can be for us. If you're a Christian, this pastor says, you are going to experience times, plural, not one, times, when you are deeply offended, deeply hurt, and deeply sinned against. This has happened to you, and it will happen again. These are opportunities to show mercy. Maybe that's where you are today, deeply hurt, Maybe there's someone you've never forgiven. Among us, I'm sure that's the case here somewhere today. And I'm sure in all of our hearts we realize, yeah, there's times where I've really hardened my heart. And maybe right now I'm living in that bitterness and that grudge. The pain is real. And we are to be reminded of the mercy Jesus showed us. He showed it to us while we were yet sinners. And he's able to give you the spiritual grace to show mercy to someone who sinned against you. The world doesn't think this way. The world is shame, outrage-based. The world says revenge. 
bitterness. Cast them out. Matthew 5 says, if you've got something to deal with with a brother or sister in the church, in love and humility and grace, deal with that. Before you come to church, Matthew 5 says. First John, you can't love God and hate your brother. The two are impossible, mutually. Sometimes the church acts like the world here. The story is told of two Scottish sisters. They lived together. They had a falling out. Instead of reconciling and repenting, they stayed in the same house, drew a line across the room, and lived the rest of their lives in a smoldering, bitter, revenge-filled silence. That is not the way of Christ. That is not God's will for his church. The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. How's it go? As we have forgiven our debtors. This is not saying you earn your salvation. We all struggle with this. We're weak, but we have to recognize in our hearts, oh God, search me, know me. To be truly repentant is to realize all the mercy I have is undeserved. It's by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It's not like the cul-de-sac. It's not like the bog with dead water. It flows. Now, oh God, help me to show mercy to those who have sinned against me. And I've sinned against them. Help me not to be so blind to think that I'm just kind of the, the one who's been sinned against. Oh, God, search me. Make me like Jesus for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. This applies to our words. Being merciful and gracious in how we speak. Steve Lawson says, it takes no size to criticize. It's easy to be a critic. Easy to sit back and point out the flaws in people, in our homes, in our marriages, as siblings, as church members, toward church leaders, towards those in our neighborhood. It's so easy to sit back and harden our hearts. But it takes the grace and spirit of God to encourage Dear Christian, how can you be merciful and encouraging today in your words with those you live with, work with, worship with? Jesus says forgiven people are forgiving people. We see this not only in forgiveness, but we see this in genuine compassion to alleviate needs. The parable of the Good Samaritan There's so much that could be said here. We're not going to go through all of it, but we need to remember that Jesus is speaking here to whom? Luke 10, if you have your Bibles, you can look there. He's talking to a teacher, to a lawyer, to someone who is an expert in the law of Moses. He may be a temple priest. He's challenging Jesus, Luke 10. That means he's not genuinely wanting help in the question he has. He's a tool of Satan, like Satan himself tested Jesus, to try to trap Jesus. What must I do to get eternal life, he says in Luke 10. Good question. Selfish motive. 
Remember Heidelberg 60? How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Christ. Only by Christ's righteousness imputed to me. But was this Pharisee like we can be in our hearts, thinking, I just want the benefits of God. I don't want God himself. Edward says that's a mark of a hypocrite. The hypocrite desires the things of God more than God himself. Okay, I want heaven, and if Jesus is the way there, then okay, but I just want that. And if Jesus isn't there, I'm okay with that. But the beauty of God, the grace of God grips us, and we realize Christ is what makes heaven heaven. Christ is the pearl of great price. Christ is our joy, and we are called to love God more than life itself. The Pharisee is a curmudgeon, A curmudgeon who wants to enforce rules, but show no mercy. Jesus asks him, well, what does the law require? He rightly summarizes it. Love for God and love for neighbor. Your heart, your emotions, your affections, your will. Love in your soul, your vitality. Love in your strength, your energy, your drive. How you use your abilities to glorify God, those things God gave you. Love in your mind, understanding, reason. And love your neighbors yourself, so meet their needs with the joy with which you would meet your own needs. The Pharisee got that right. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Go do this and you'll live. What's Jesus saying? This is the first use of the law. Jesus is using the law here to show this man his sin, his need for a righteousness that he does not have, showing that in his heart he has all the right answers, but he's not doing this. He's not loving God or his neighbor perfectly. None of us is. That doesn't mean you go and say, well, I don't care. This man's blind. He wants to justify himself. Do you see that, Luke 10, 29? What did David say after his adultery with Bathsheba? Not, I want to justify myself, but God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This Pharisee doesn't plead for God's mercy. He asked Jesus another question. Who is my neighbor? I can't love everyone, come on. Show me what this really means, Jesus. He wants a loophole because a lot of people in the Pharisees' day were thinking, well, my neighbor is people like me, Jewish people like me, people who are really godly like me, and I'm not going to love anyone else who isn't like me. And in our hearts, how tempted we are to live the same way. To love people that love us back, to love people that are like us, that we like, that we get along with, But no way, I'm not going to love those people. There is a piety that hardens. A piety that makes us proud and stern, eager to point out wrongs and punish the wrongdoer, expose sin, ostracize sinners, one man said. That's what's going on here. Jesus says, okay, here's my answer to you perhaps the most well-known parable in the Bible. 
a Jerusalem to Jericho road called the Bloody Way. 18 miles it dropped down. Canyons, mountains, dangerous. A man is traveling. He's attacked. Highwaymen. They take his clothes. They leave him half dead. Is someone going to help him? We see a priest come by. Maybe someone who is worshiping God at the temple, talking about loving God, going to where the priests live in Jericho. It's all talk. He doesn't help them. He passes by. Then a Levite in charge of the music and the liturgy. He gets a little closer, takes a look, sees that this man is half dead and the guy who hurt him and almost killed him might be close by. I'm out of here. No way. One person says there was a lot of anti-clerical sentiment in those days. So the people hearing this parable were saying, yeah, that, that's right. That priest, that Levite, of course they're not going to help. And what they were expecting Jesus to say next was the third guy who came by was your average covenant-believing Jew. They're shocked. Jesus says, a Samaritan. Horrible animosity and hatred, the Jews and the Samaritans, for hundreds of years. Samaritans, part Jewish, part Assyrian. Pagan ideas with Jewish ideas. Jewish people would pray against them. Luke 9 says the Samaritans refused to help Jesus when he was on the highway. A good Samaritan, that's an oxymoron, that's a contradiction. That'd be like an Islamic fundamentalist helping a Christian who's injured in a terrorist attack. The last thing you'd expect. And Jesus holds up this guy as the example. The Samaritan stops. His schedule's inconvenienced. He helps. The man had real physical needs. He helped him with bandages and ointments. It cost him financially. He put him up in an inn. Innkeepers are shady in that day. He says, whatever I owe you, I'll pay. He sought to relieve the consequence of suffering with compassion. The outsider is brought in by grace through faith in Christ. The insider is out. That's part of this. But there's much more. The question is, not only who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor to those God has put in my path? But the gospel needs to be foundational here as well. Who can do this perfectly? The gospel tells us we are the man who's beaten and bloodied. And not just laying half dead, but we are dead in our sin by the side of the road. That's us. Jesus is the good Samaritan who doesn't come across the road but comes from heaven to earth, who comes to show compassion to the lost, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to bear our iniquities and sins, to be made sin for us, to pay our debt, to rise from the dead. Jesus is the good Samaritan in perfect glory. And now Christian, he says, you go not to earn your salvation, but out of the mercy you've had given to you in God, go and show mercy. Out of the forgiveness you've been given in God, go and forgive. Out of the grace you have by the Spirit, 
caring for the sick, meeting people's physical and financial needs, being the mask of Jesus to those in need. The ministry of mercy is not just a ministry of the deacons. They lead in that, but it's a ministry for all of God's people. It's how we live. It's how we love our neighbor. When we believe we're a sinner saved by grace, it makes us patient with people and generous and merciful to people. It means we bear someone's burdens. It means we ask God to help those who are right before me now. God calls us at Emmaus Road to love mercy, Micah 6. That's our calling. So in your family, at your school, how can you show mercy? The difference will be enormous by the grace of God. At work, neighborhood, workplace, wherever you are, how can you help your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone in need whom in the providence of God, you and I are able to help. Today, the Sabbath is a great day to show mercy through the week. There's two examples of this as I close. It was 2019, a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and his wife took their six-year-old to the doctor. They found out that she had a kidney tumor. You can read this in the New Horizons magazine. The days following the diagnosis were traumatic And the article talks about coming alongside. So there's one way. How do you come alongside a family? It could be a married family. It could be a family with kids. It could be a single person in the church and show real care. Be present, it says. Pray, but don't say call if you need something. You know that. That, That's just kind of an out. Show up by bringing them groceries or taking their kids to soccer practice. So many of you are lead by example in this way, so much. When they're at the hospital, go and help clean their house. Walk their dog. Write a note regularly. This man and others in this article talk about how regular encouragement helps. Regular, day by day, being reminded of who God is. Being reminded that people care. He says this, to couples, work on your marriage before the crisis comes. The crisis comes or it has already come or it will come. If our marriages are held together by duct tape, at some point a crisis will come and the fallout could be enormous. Another woman says, use the gifts God has given to serve. Some of you musically are gifted. As someone is suffering or hurting, how can you use that to to, to encourage them? Art, writing cards, giving a pedicure to a bedridden friend, they say. So many ways. Here's another application. Refugees in Italy. A pastor in one of our sister denominations, Mike Brown, serves in Milan, Italy. As need comes, as help is before them, here's what happened. Just in the last few weeks, they've had a woman who has had to flee 
because the town she lived in was under attack. She's a member at a Presbyterian church in Ukraine. Missiles hit her neighborhood. She came through Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, Hungary, Slovenia, and Italy. They pick her up as a church at the train station. She hadn't eaten in days. By God's grace, she's recovering. She speaks Ukrainian, Italian, and Russian. Another family with three children fled their apartment building, which was hit by a Russian missile. They got out in time. Chaos at gas stations. Hundreds of thousands of refugees on the roads. Difficulty crossing the borders. Martial law in Ukraine has been declared. Their bank cards are blocked. They have a tiny bit of cash. They use it for gas. This family from the Presbyterian Church in Kharkiv finally makes it to Italy. (laughs) And last Sunday, a week ago, they are there in Milan, worshiping with God's people. And the woman who was there was able to translate the sermon for them into Ukrainian. Our God moves in mysterious ways. Here are saints being encouraged by the word of God, being fed and clothed. Physical needs abound, and the church is rushing in to help. That's an example. We have examples in our own hearts and lives and situations. We won't really love anyone or really show mercy and compassion to anyone, whether small or great, whether a refugee from Ukraine or our brother that we share a room with, until we grasp by faith the love and mercy God has shown us in Christ. Dear Christian, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we praise you that you are rich in mercy to us, abounding in steadfast love. And we who have received all of this by grace through faith in Jesus pray, oh, that we would not harden our hearts. Open our eyes to see areas in our life today and this week to show mercy. That we would be a merciful people and that you would be abundantly praised by your people as we care for the hurting among us and around us. To the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.